This is the word of God to us. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Cale Freeman. I serve as one of the pastors here, and it is a uh, honor and a privilege to get to open up the Word of God with you guys today. So um, you guys pray for me, and I will pray for you. Uh, Father God, Lord, I pray, Lord, for everyone in this room, that as we open up your Word, that you would speak to us, and that your words would uh, be found on very open minds and open hearts. Lord, that as we speak about something that is difficult in many a person's life, Lord, we pray that we would all see the hope and the healing and the restoration that you have for us all. Lord, you're good and you're wonderful, Lord, and we want to hear your word and we want to apply it to our lives today. Amen. Well, um, you guys probably don't know Dr. Daniel B. Wallace and don't know what that name means, but uh, he, he was actually uh, very important in my life. Uh, though I've only gotten to talk to him about once. Um, This guy is uh, one of the uh, most well-known biblical scholars in the world as it relates to uh, Greek literature and specifically in the uh, New Testament. Um, He is a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, but like I say, he's known across the world. His uh, book on Greek grammar is like this thick. It's one of the thicker books on my shelf, and it's uh, what I used in seminary to uh, learn a, a lot of what I know about Greek. Now, we could talk about how amazing he is and all the things that he knows, but the most amazing thing about this man's story is not what he knows, but actually what he forgot. So this guy contracted in 1997 encephalitis, which if you don't know is a swelling of the brain, and it got so bad that he actually lost most of his memories. Now, you can imagine like how bad losing memory is for anyone at any time, like it's always a tragedy, and yet... Just imagine being a scholar. You've, you've devoted decades of your life to knowing something and being able to recall and memorize things within your field. And now this world-renowned scholar has the knowledge of a first-year student. Now, a lot of people would say, like, okay, well, I guess we're, we're done with that endeavor. Let's go do something else. Uh, not this guy, though. He says, like, well, the only thing that I can do is just relearn the language, Now, here's what's crazy, though. That big, thick Greek grammar book that I mentioned that I have on my desk that I learned Greek from, he had actually gone through and published it the year prior. So he's like, hey, I need to relearn, and he relearns the entire language from a book that he wrote himself a year ago. (laughs) Now, how crazy is that? But what's even crazier is how often we forget things all the time without a swelling in our brains. <laughs> and we know this all the time. Like we, We're sending reminders on our phones. We do all kinds of things to try to keep from it, but we still do it. Just imagine like the last time it was your mom's birthday and it's 10 p.m. and you're like, oh man, <laughs> I never called. <laughs> We've all been there. Imagine the last time that you, uh, you left for a vacation and you didn't feed the fish and you're like, man, like, do I tell the kids what really happened? <laughs> or do I not? Maybe he's just swimming around the ocean somewhere. (laughs) But what's really tragic is whenever we forget something, it's not just really important, but of immense importance, being the meaning and the value and the purpose of a great many things in our life. So what we're going to be talking about from this text today is the gospel in marriage. We're going to be talking about marriage, the meaning of marriage, the purpose of marriage, and the value of of marriage, we live in a society that has decided that uh, marriage is anything that we want it to be, 
And we have largely forgotten what the actual meaning, purpose, and value is. But instead, we ascribe to it whatever thing we want it to be. Maybe it's companionship. Maybe it's romantic fulfillment. Maybe it's the best place to express our conservative values as it is the best place to have children in a family. But left in and of itself, without the true meaning, purpose, and value, none of these things can stand on their own. So what we're going to be talking about today is the gospel and marriage. So if you're not already there, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 through 16. Um, let me catch you guys up. Um, if you're just joining us recently in the last few weeks, we've been in a series on Advent where we've been talking about uh, the first and the second coming of Jesus to the earth. And uh, now we're going to pivot pretty hard and we're going to go back to a sermon series that we've been in for about four months, which is going through the letter of 1 Corinthians. Now, letter of 1 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Corinth. It's like, um, there might be an exception, but it's like one of the first pieces of scripture that was written in about like early to mid 50s AD. And he writes it to a church. And let me tell you, no church is perfect, but like this church is like really, really not perfect. And most of the letter is him correcting them and saying, hey, I heard that even though you say that you believe in Jesus Christ, that you've added this belief or you've added this behavior. And by the way, instead, you need to have this belief and this behavior. I mean, it's just we're going back and forth over the whole letter practically doing this dance. And so we're starting here where we left off a few weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 7. We're, we're right in the middle of the chapter. What happened before this is Paul was speaking to uh, sexuality within the uh, marriage covenant, but now he's going to shift his focus not to sexuality within the covenant, but he's going to look at the covenant itself. So today you're going to hear a lot about marriage and divorce. So there's a couple of things that we need to say ahead of time before we continue. Uh, first of all, some of you guys, you know, you stood up earlier to hear the word of God read and you like immediately wanted to sit down because of that feeling in your stomach because of the subject matter. That's probably because you've been a, um, a person who has been affected by divorce. Um, maybe you wanted that divorce, maybe you pursued it, and maybe you didn't, but you just find yourself walking around feeling like you have like a big scarlet letter on you and you feel like everyone's judging you. And I just want you to hear from the beginning of the sermon that the heart of God for you is always hope and healing and restoration, and you're among friends. Now, secondly, to those who are considering divorce, I want to caution you. This sermon is going to talk a lot about marriage and divorce and subjects around it, but it's not nearly enough information for you to decide if you have biblical grounds for divorce or if you should pursue a divorce. There are certainly uh, grounds for such things. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But anytime we are considering any of these kind of things, divorce, remarriage, uh, or, or, or marriage in the first place, uh, you should be uh, seeking pastoral wisdom and counsel within that because we don't have the time or even the ability to talk about the complexities of every person's life and situation past marriage, current marriage, divorce, or anything like that. It has to be done on a case-by-case basis. So I just want to encourage you to not take this and immediately say, ah, well, I have grounds for divorce. I'm going to pursue that in isolation. Please don't do that. And third, um, this text talks a lot about the unbeliever. Um, 
that would be someone who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and their God. Some of you are in here today, and I just want to point that out. Hey, um, we're honored that you're here. We love that you're here. It's, you know, the Bible's very clear. There's a difference in someone who believes in Jesus and a person that doesn't, but that doesn't mean that you're like an enemy or that like you shouldn't be here or something like that. It's just talking about the very real reality that sometimes uh, a married person uh, is married, or a Christian who's married is going to be married to a non believer. So we just want to talk, uh, talk through that and speak to what Scripture speaks to. So uh, if you have questions after this and uh, you want to ask those, I would love to like clear my schedule to make that happen for you. Um, I'd love to just answer any question you might have uh, that, that you might have from this sermon or anything else. But let's begin by reading 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10. It says, To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. The first thing I want you guys to see in this text today is that marriage reflects the gospel. Marriage reflects the gospel. Uh, Divorce, marriage, remarriage in the first century Greco-Roman context that this was written in happened very differently than it does today. Um, You know, there was barely any legalities to it. Lawyers were not involved. Just by virtue of two uh, people coming together and saying, hey, we're married, the society at large would just say like, okay, they're married. And by the way, if one spouse left the other, uh, there was no difference in separation or divorce. You'll see those two words throughout this passage used interchangeably. To leave your spouse physically and to leave the relationship was to enact divorce. It was the same exact thing in this cultural context. And by the way, um, it was very common at the time. And also it was pursued by both men and women. Obviously by men more so, and yet there's plenty of historical evidence to show that women enacted divorce at this time as well. So Paul goes on and says in 7 verse 10, to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. What Paul is doing here is saying like, hey, I'm just restating what Jesus has already said about this. He says, hey, hey this, is, this isn't me. This is the teaching of Jesus that we can find in the Gospels. We're not going to go there right now, but just a, a brief summary of that would be that marriage is a union and that a man and a woman become one flesh, and that union is created by God himself. And then whenever he spoke on divorce, he says, hey, um, in light of the fact that it is a union, and in, in light of the fact that God is the one who created that union, my disciples, generally speaking, should not divorce. It's just the general Christian teaching. But why did they actually want to divorce in the, for, in the first place? It was very common in the day to get a divorce for any number of reasons, just as it would be today. And yet, uh, even though there's a little bit of debate as to exactly what was going on with the Corinthian church, there was a belief that it was better, just blanket statement, to divorce rather than stay married. It was likely seen as a spiritual practice. So they were viewing it as like, man, the most spiritual thing I can do right now is get divorced. A little bit different than our context today, but not irrelevant. In 7-11, we get a, um, an exception to this. Paul says, hey, but if she does, if she does separate, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So that, that part at the end is just saying, hey, it doesn't matter if the husband um, uh, pursues the divorce or if the wife, either way, it still applies the same way. He says that they should remain unmarried in that you don't go out and go get a different spouse 
or else be reconciled to her husband. Now, here's what it means by reconciled. Reconciled meaning that the hostility of this broken relationship is to be exchanged for a peaceful and restored relationship. And that's because marriage is a reflection of the gospel, and specifically in gospel reconciliation, to be reconciled. We see this in Ephesians 5, 31 through 32 very, very clearly. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So the marriage union is a picture of the covenant love that Jesus has with his people, the church, the church being his bride. It reflects the great links that he has gone to and willing to go to bring that people for himself into relationship, to win a bride for himself. And even though she's constantly tempted in turning to other loves, even though he's the one who is most offended in this relationship, he initiates reconciliation. It's a picture of the gospel. Now, there is what is called biblical grounds for divorce. Um, There are trusted teachers who disagree exactly on what these are, so we have to proceed with humility and with charity with one another here. But uh, the eldership of Frontline Church holds that a divorce might have biblical grounds, being that it is permissive to do so in the cases of abuse, abandonment, and adultery. Now, none of those things, like I said earlier, should ever be done in um, what is called isolation, but should be consulted with a pastor in order to get pastoral wisdom, not just on this text, but on what the entire weight of the Bible has to say to it, and also what your particular situation has to say. Now, if you do believe that you are going through abuse, abandonment, or that your spouse is cheating on you, that's not something that you should also stay quiet about out of shame or fear. That's something that you should go to people who can help. And we want to hear from you if you're in that. And we want to grieve with you in that situation. And we want to help you in the best way that we can. But for everyone, where does your view of marriage even come from? For most of us, we're just doing again what we saw in our own homes growing up. Or we're reacting against it. Or maybe we've seen a movie or maybe there's a particular Instagram influencer that you think is quite wise. But one way or the other, most of us get our view of marriage from any number of things and we don't get it from the scriptures. You know, churches have been pounding the pulpit on the idea that we live in a consumeristic culture like since before I was born. Um, And you guys have probably heard this before, but like most of us don't have eyes to see that our view of marriage is just as consumeristic as anything else. We're looking for the one, the one that's going to fulfill us, not in every way, just in every way that I want them to. Not unreasonable here. And what happens whenever you find that person, but then you don't find the fulfillment? Because if that's all it is, it has no legs to stand on. If you don't know the actual meaning of marriage from the scriptures, if you don't see that it's a reflection of the gospel, it will not stand. But I now want to show you guys the second thing in our text today, which is that marriage is a gospel opportunity. Verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, talk about that in a sec, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. 
So marriage is a gospel opportunity. Earlier, Paul said, um, not I, but the Lord. And now he's saying, I, not the Lord. This isn't Paul saying like, hey, before that was Jesus and now this is just my opinion. No, no, no. The whole thing is the word of God. Instead, here's what he's doing. He's saying, hey, whenever Jesus taught and what I just restated to you was in a particular context. And that context was a couple who both believed in Jesus. And now I'm going to apply that same teaching, but in a new way, I, not the Lord, a new way to this particular context where you have a marriage that, is both, uh, that has both a Christian in it and a non-Christian. He's not talking about, by the way, so-called missionary dating, which would be um, a Christian who is, um, you know, trying to date someone, finds a non-believer and says, like, well, I'll go ahead and marry them and maybe it'll all work out. Um, that's not to say that that hasn't happened. You might know someone who that has happened for, but in large part, the scriptures are against such things. We're talking about someone who's already married and one became a believer while the other has not yet, okay? Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Um, so if anyone's married in the room, you're probably like, hey, that holy there probably doesn't mean moral perfection, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, holy can have a few different senses. One is moral perfection, and that's certainly used in the Bible. Holy here, though, is its other sense, which is that something has been set apart for a particular purpose. And here we see what that particular purpose is. It's a gospel opportunity. We see in verse 16, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? What he's saying is here is like, hey, if you come to faith and your spouse has not come to faith, they have been set apart in a particular way, in a special way, where you as their spouse can show them a reflection of the gospel in your marriage that no one else could do. And maybe... Not with a guarantee, but maybe they will actually come to faith as well. It's a gospel opportunity. And even though the context here is speaking to a marriage that has both a Christian and a non-Christian in it, that's not to say that in our marriages, that if you're married to a Christian, that you don't need to be preaching the gospel to them all the time as well. That's already a given. Verse 15, we get another exception. It says, but if the unbelieving partner separates... Let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So here's what it's saying. Paul acknowledges that there's probably going to be people who, after you come to faith, your spouse may not actually want to be with you any longer not least of which that whenever you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you're a new creation, and the thing that is most important about you is now different. They may not want to live with you anymore in a society where divorce is rampant. But then he says, well, hey, let it be so. He's not saying, hey, that's a good thing. He's not saying, hey, we should go for it. No, and say he's saying, like, hey, you're not going to be able to control that. Let it be so. It's permissive. It's not the highest ideal, but it's like, yeah, if that happens, then you're not enslaved to the marriage. Now, again, what does enslaved mean is a great question. Um, trusted teachers, again, disagree exactly as to what this means, so we have to proceed with humility and caution. 
Some would say that not enslaved to the marriage means that because you're not the one that dissolved the marriage, means that uh, you're not sinning by having been divorced. While there's another view out there that says you're not enslaved to it, and they believe uh, most, if not all, of that, but also because the divorce was not in your hands, you then can remarry. So here's what you need to know, at least for now. Remarriage is not in the rest of this context. The primary thing is stay married, be reconciled. The second thing is um, talking about exceptions to divorce. So if it is in view here, it's not the primary thing, nor is it the secondary thing. Now, I'm not saying that there is no grounds for remarriage, but what I am saying is, again, because of the complexities of life and all the many texts on the subject, that has to be done in the counsel of pastoral wisdom. That's not something to be done in isolation. That's not something to read this text and say, hey, well, therefore, I can or can't be married. That's something that you need to uh, consult pastoral wisdom for and not in isolation. Uh, back in the 1920s, Germany had just lost the, uh, the First World War, and they were not doing well economically. They were paying reparations to, I think, uh, France and Belgium after the Treaty of Versailles. And they made a series of really poor economic uh, decisions that led to hyperinflation. So if you think like milk and eggs are expensive now, get ready for this. Uh, the German mark started losing its value at about 50% a month to the point that a loaf of bread cost millions of marks. Kids started putting the bills together because they were so worthless. They started making them into building blocks. And there's like tons of pictures on the internet like this one that shows them playing with millions of dollars or millions of marks, excuse me. It was so worthless that not only that, whenever someone would actually use them to pay for something, some businesses just stopped counting. They started weighing the notes, like the paper notes. It had lost that much value, and it was that worthless. But my question to you is, what value is marriage to you at all? And what value do you ascribe to it? If I was to give you a notebook and a really dull pencil, and I said, hey, write down every way that marriage could be valuable or is valuable to you or anyone else, what would make the list? Companionship, an antidote for loneliness, a place to express holy sexual desires. I mean, even financial uh, coaches will tell you right now that like statistically, married people are way more likely to become very, very wealthy than the non-married or even than the cohabitating, right? So like we can, we can name so many things. And none of the things that I just mentioned are bad. A lot of them are really good. But would gospel opportunity even make your list? Would the opportunity for the gospel be on there at all? If we don't understand the value of marriage as a gospel opportunity, then again, we're standing on a marriage that has no legs. We have to know the meaning. We have to know the purpose. We have to know the value of marriage. So let's talk about what we do with this. Marriage is to be viewed and practiced according to the word of God. To be viewed and practiced according to the word of God. 
There's two ways that we can accomplish that. First one is by pursuing reconciliation at all times. Reconciliation is always the highest aim, and there's a whole lot of things that we can find in the Bible about marriage, excuse me, and what uh, a married person is to do. Uh, Reconciliation is among the highest. See, the reality is, is that we're all way too good at hurting our spouse. We're really good at it. And we have to reconcile. Reconciliation comes whenever there is a division in the relationship for one reason or the other. And we have to continue to reconcile. And we have to keep our accounts short with our spouse. So let me, let me speak to a couple of different groups of people in the room. I'm probably not going to hit every single group of people in the room. But I'm, I'm going to get there. I'm going to get close. For husbands, we're, we're notorious for coming home and putting the entire weight of our anxiety and worries of the workday and just throwing it on our spouse or trying to stuff it and then whenever your spouse does something that you don't particularly like, you just lash out at them and the entire night is ruined before you even get the kids down. That's an opportunity to repent. That's an opportunity to reconcile, to apologize. And I don't mean one of those apologies that's like, Man, I'm sorry I made you feel that way. I've done that. (laughs) Don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Stuff applies to me as much as anyone else. No, instead, hey, I've sinned against you in this way. I've disrespected you and dishonored you. Will you forgive me? And by the way, if you're the wife in that relationship... In order to reconcile, you actually have to forgive them. And whenever we do this, our marriages actually reflect the reconciliation of the gospel, that even though we blow it all the time, and even though we sin against Jesus all the time, he reconciles with us and he accepts and gives us forgiveness. For a lot of you guys in the room, you haven't done this a whole lot, or there's been something like particularly bad that one has done to the other, it might require more than just one conversation. It might require uh, mediation, pastoral counsel. It might also require marriage counseling. And let me just help you out here. If your spouse comes to you and says, hey, I need marriage counseling, like, you probably do, bro. Now, that being said, that counseling may not be the way that he or she thinks it will be, and that counseling may be a licensed marriage counselor, it might be a pastor or a trusted friend, depending on the severity. But again, I just want to encourage you all to lean on pastoral wisdom and counsel because that is how God has created his church. We're not just making this up. We're not CEOs over here at the business of church. Instead, this is how God has created his church to be with called qualified elders who want to help you. Please don't stay in isolation. To the divorced or those considering divorce, we should pursue reconciliation and with pastoral counsel. You might be in here and say like, wow, I don't have to change this text a whole lot or I don't have to think about it a whole lot for it to apply to me. I am currently divorced and I think God is calling me to reconcile with my spouse. And if so, that would be a really great application. That's exactly what it's calling for here, but I want to encourage you to do that in pastoral counsel and wisdom. And the reason for that is a lot of us are struggling with even how to be married, let alone how to reconcile a divorce. You shouldn't do that in isolation. We want to help you. And I know what this sounds like to the world. It sounds absolutely crazy to say, like, hey, like, the divorce is already done. Like, why would I 
go back? Why would I even try? But let me tell you, what an amazing picture of Jesus Christ to the world. And maybe the world just doesn't have this one right. So those who are considering divorce, maybe to the person who's beside you, but you haven't talked to them, the main force of this text is reconciliation. Reconciliation is always the first and highest call and as much as it is in our ability. Again, there are reasons for what is called a biblical grounds of divorce, which may be done in the case of abuse, abandonment, or adultery. The main force of this text is call for reconciliation, and if you're considering these things, come talk to us. We want to help you and also seek reconciliation. In the meantime, um, I, I can't remember, uh, I don't think I mentioned this at the beginning of the sermon, but um, if you're looking for a more uh, full conversation on marriage, remarriage, and divorce, you can go to our website, 2021, October and November. Pastor JJ gave a more full discussion on that. You can check that out, but don't do it in isolation, and don't just do it from a couple of sermons. And by the way, to the single, um, your application today is not for, like, just in case you get married. Like, I think that's obvious. Like, hey, store this away in case you get married. But we actually need you to know these things right now. You're a part of the covenant community of the church, and part of what that means is that we hold each other accountable to the covenants that we've made to God and to others. So whenever you're in a community group with someone and they're saying, man, my marriage is on the rocks, it's really hard, I don't know what to do, you don't need to like, try to be a guru here of something that you don't maybe understand, but what you can say is, hey, I've never been married, I don't know what this looks like, but I do know that God's will is that reconciliation is always the highest call. You should get reconciled to your spouse. We need you to do that. You're not exempt from it, lest we forget that Paul is single, instructing the entire church on this. Second thing that we need to do is proclaim the gospel in our marriages. First of all, by sharing the gospel with your unbelieving spouse. Uh, some of you guys are married to people right now who don't know Jesus. We have to share the gospel with them, and, and you're called specifically in this text to take that gospel opportunity and actually speak the gospel to them. But here's what this looks like. Uh, first of all, I don't want to just state the obvious, but to say something that's really easy to do is to bring them to church. We go to great pains to make this a very hospitable environment for people who actually uh, don't know what they think about Jesus Christ, and we want them to come here and hear about the joy that we have because we want to give them that joy, but also they're not going to feel like a project piece here if you bring them. So I just want to invite you to do that. But secondly, what this actually looks like, we don't have to make this too complicated. It doesn't mean that it's not difficult, but we certainly don't have to make it too complicated. Don't discount the power of praying for your spouse. You came to faith because somebody prayed for you, among other things. Pray for your spouse. Whenever you blow it in your marriage and you sin against them, repent and reconcile with them and show them the picture of the gospel that's in the marriage, even if they don't view marriage in this way. And yes, we're also going to have to actually use words and share the gospel, and we're not gonna do it just once. We're gonna do it many times over the course of the days, weeks, months, and years that you are in this marriage. 
And my prayer and my hope and what I know will happen is that God will speak to you as to when and how to do that. Pray for discernment. But finally, for those of you who are married to another Christian here, even though the context is the opposite, you need to be encouraging the faith of your, of your believing spouse. We, we never move on from the gospel. Even if your uh, spouse knows of Jesus, even if they've read Ephesians 5, even if they're a disciple just like you, sometimes we don't know, or we, excuse me, sometimes we don't remember who we are in Christ, or frankly, who Christ even is, until a brother or a sister tells us, and sometimes whenever a spouse tells us and reminds us. We have to constantly encourage one another in Christ. It's the work of discipleship. It's what we ask everyone to do in, light of the, in the context of their community groups. Why would we skip the most significant relationship that you currently have in your life if you have a spouse currently? Discipleship is always happening. And encouraging their faith is important over the days and the weeks and the months and the years of your marriage. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would do every bit of work in the room Every person who has a story that we've talked about today and every person that has a story that wasn't mentioned. But we pray that you would actually do hard work in their lives, but good work. Work that leads to joy no matter where they're at. Pray, Lord, that we'd be able to see our marriages. Even if we got married and we did not know that this was what it was, that we would now change our view of marriage and see it as a gospel opportunity that reflects you. So pray these things in your name. Amen.